0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Catherine Haddon, Senior Fellow and your host for the evening, Hannah White, Centre. apologies. Well, we've just come to the end of a momentous 10 days in UK history and a tumultuous two weeks in British politics. A fortnight ago, Liz Truss was settling in to her first evening at Downing Street. Today, she's at the UN in New York, returning to the economic policies that may define her time in office, and only now able to resume her launch plan for the government that she still has not even finished appointing. So what a time to be taking a much longer view and after a week of wall-to-wall documentaries to consider the role that public personas and documentary making have on our politics. And what better person to discuss that with than the master of political filmmaking, Michael Cockrell.
1: Thank you.
0: Uh, Michael has been making documentaries about our politics and our government for over 50 years. He has interviewed 12 former Prime Ministers, almost as many as the late Queen. are very three more than me. Yes, she did. We are very pleased to have him with us this evening. Um, And I should say, if you're watching at home, please do send in your questions using the Q&A function. Um, For those in the room, we will have a roving mic for questions later, and we'll be tweeting at IFG events using the hashtag IFG Um, we will also have a video and sound recording on the events uh, of the event on our website within 24 hours which I think will be one to watch back because we've also got a number of clips that Michael has been very generous to share with us and that he will be talking about this evening Um, Michael, before we get into that, I just want to ask, I mean, you've had a front row seat for a huge sweep of British political history. How has the last 10 days compared to what you've seen before?
1: Madness. Complete madness. I mean, everything, ever since Boris Johnson became leader of the Tory party, um, everything's been going at warp speed. But it's speeded up even faster than than Boris could make it. It's just... For a journalist, there have been new stories sort of on the hour, every hour, instead of stories which last for three days and things like that. It's a very, very difficult world, but what's happened in, in the last 10 days just mm. been extraordinary.
2: Yeah,
1: just, And you couldn't... You know, I, I think it's been like a, a Netflix box set, the Boris years, and subsequently... Um, Written by a scriptwriter on speed, channeling Shakespeare, Monty Python, and The Sopranos—all three of them—all come and, and there's the brutality, yeah. and there's there's the tragedy, and then there's the tragic comedy of Boris Johnson. You can put a crown on a clown, but he's still a clown
0: we will get to looking a bit more um, intensely at J- Boris Johnson a bit later. Um, so start talking us through the clips. I think you wanted to start with one from Harold Macmillan.
1: Yeah. Um, we go back to um, 19, oh, phew, 1961, when the BBC was celebrating uh, 25 years of television And in those days, uh, the BBC was much more self-confident than they are now, Um, and they hired the Grocers' Hall, one of the the city livery companies, with with a a vast hall, um, and invited the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, who um, was just coming to terms with this new invention of television. Um, And they invited him to, to make the speech on, the, on this 25th anniversary. So if we're ready, if you could cue clip one, this is the grocer's hall in London.
3: It is in airports that television chooses to lurk. <laughs> you go by sea, you go by road, you go by rail, nobody bothers you very much. But if you go by air, there it is. That hot, pitiless, probing eye. <laughs> After 14 hours of travel, you get off the aeroplane wanting only a shave and a bath. Oh no, you're cornered. The lights in your eyes, the cameras whizzing. You put up your hand, shade your eyes. And the next day, there you are. In the daily clarion. Looking weary. Old. Worried. Over a caption which implies that you are past it.
1: What timing. What I timing. I mean, he, you know, he was the, the actor, manager, um, prime minister. And, and he understood, began to understand uh, how you could use television. In fact, it was, it was... The Queen's coronation and the, 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 Her Majesty wanted uh, for the first time the coronation to be, to be televised and Churchill, when he was Prime Minister, um, didn't want that to happen. But she overrode Churchill on that. Um, and Churchill himself n- was never, ever interviewed on television. He hated the idea of television. He called it a tuppany Haply punch punch-and-judy show. But after the coronation, when the sale of sets doubled overnight, I remember myself, uh, we had a, a set in our house and um, most of the neighbours didn't have. And they all crowded in to watch the television on our nine-inch screen, which was seen as pretty good in those days. Um, but Churchill saw the power of television and decided that he was going to have a secret screen test made to see how he would come over on television. And he'd come over brilliantly and used radio brilliantly um, on, uh, during the war and afterwards, but he'd never used television and he wanted to see um, how this new invention really worked. And. He got his broadcasting officer, um, a woman called Winifred Crum Ewing. They were all called funny names like that in those days. And she uh, didn't have much to do because he was never on television. But uh, she arranged uh, to do a a secret film test to see what he looked like on television. And um, let let me show you it. This is the Churchill screen test. Here's the... Yes, it's coming.
2: I've come here not to talk to you and certainly not to enable you to spread the tale all over the place but just to enable me to see what are the conditions under which this thing they call TV is going to uh, make its way in the world I'm sorry I must admit uh, they have to uh, descend to this level. But uh, we all have to keep pace with modern improvements, and it's just as well to see where you are in regard to this. There's no point in refusing to move with the age, and therefore I have consented to, to come and have this exhibition, which is for one person and one person only, that only one person is going to judge what is to be done with this, and what is to follow
0: from. I am that
1: person. There you are, There you see me. I am the one. I am the one. It was extraordinary. His contempt for television comes from Sorry to have to descend to this level this thing they call TV. He made it sound like a sexually transmitted disease. But it's, uh, that's
0: quite remarkable because he was a man who was very much knew about public persona, you know, the cigar, exactly. the siren suit, the overtone, all, and even the victory sign. He, yeah. he knew how to play different kind of cameras, the, you know, photograph and as exactly. you say, radio.
1: Yes, um, but interesting, when, he was nearly 80 when that was done and he mm. saw that that Miss Crumb Ewing, uh, she, uh uh, showed him the film and he hated it and ordered her to destroy it and I went to see her when she was in hospital aged about 80 herself um, and was talking to her about the film I was making about prime ministers and television and she said you know I had a secret screen test made and he ordered me to destroy it but I thought it was a, a historic document so I've kept it ever since under my bed um, now you seem a nice young man a long time ago um, if I give you the keys to my house go up to the first floor and the bedroom's on the first floor and under the bed in a cardboard box is a, a film can which says Churchill screen test and you can imagine our excitement when we, when we got this um, but um, Churchill himself hated He's, I suppose, because you know, he was eighty, he didn't like seeing mm. him. Seeing it.
0: It was the famous Graham Sutherland painting as exactly. well. that he ordered to be destroyed. because yes. he hated it so much.
1: Exactly, didn't, and he didn't want that. In fact, he he would have come across on television fantastically, like, like you know, like a fist. He had that thing which um, successful uh, television presenters have, a face shaped like a television screen, you know. Um, Trevor MacDonald, David Dimpleby, uh, they all have the, the face shaped like a television screen that fits in well, In at least in those kinds of, kinds of days. but um, So he never, ever went on television. And the Labour Party, in the meantime, were beginning to understand about television. Um, one of their, their young uh, MPs was a former... A BBC producer called Tony Wedgwood-Ben, but we're not talking about him, we're talking about Harold Wilson Harold Wilson in the 60s he uh, was elected leader of the Labour Party after Hugh Gatesgill's sudden death in um, January uh, 1963 and he saw himself as the British JFK JFK had, had been um, elected and um, he was a fantastic role model to, to because he understood about uh, the media and how it worked and, and Wilson sent for um, copies of uh, JFK's um, press conferences which were always rather humorous affairs. Harold Wilson hadn't been someone who was any good at um, jokes. Uh, I remember Gerald Kaufman said to me that when he was in the Oxford Labour Club in 1948... Um, he he got Churchill. He got, he got he got Harold Wilson to come down to speak to the Labour Club, and he was at the age of 29, president of the Board of Trade, and was the most boring speaker ever. But then he said he taught himself a sense of humour. He yeah. taught himself a sense of humour, and you'll see uh, uh, what uh, what I mean by that when I show you this clip. I'm not ready yet for it. I'll just introduce it. It's, um, Wilson, um, has been watching, uh, Kennedy and, uh, remembered about the, the, the Kennedy, uh, Nixon debates and he thought there should be, uh, the equivalent in, in Britain. He would be up against, first of all, Macmillan and then it was Sir Alec Douglas Hume. Um, and he, he, Wilson felt he personified, uh, the new Labour, New Britain, as he called it, um. Uh, young, born the first potential prime minister born in this century, and um, so he lo- looked at what was going on in America, and we can run the clip from there. And the new president's progress was closely monitored across the Atlantic by the Labour Party leader. Harold Wilson, who used to holiday on the Cilly Isles, presented himself as the British JFK. Like Kennedy, Wilson saw TV as a way of reaching voters direct and bypassing the right-wing press. What I think we're going to need is something like
2: what President Kennedy had when he came in after years of stagnation in the United States. He had a programme of 100 days, 100 days of dynamic action.
1: The Tory Prime Minister, Sir Alec Douglas Hume, an old Etonian, was Harold Wilson's opponent in the 1964 general election. My my cameraman colleagues have asked me if you'd give one wave on the steps, sir. If I duck out of the way. Hume had renounced his hereditary earldom to become Prime Minister. Harold Wilson had been to the White House to see Kennedy, hoping to catch some of the President's stardust. Claiming to represent the future like JFK, Wilson challenged Hume to the first ever TV election debate in Britain.
4: Have you decided, Prime Minister, whether to take part in some kind of television debate or confrontation with Mr Wilson during the election campaign?
3: My first reaction to this is that the British election is something in which something over 600 constituencies have to decide the issues, and the issues are issues of policy. Uh, And therefore, I'm not particularly attracted by, so to speak, confrontations of personality. If we aren't careful, you know, you'll get a sort of, um, what's it called, top of the pops um, uh, contest. I dare say I should win it, I'm not sure. It's top of the pop! I'm not really very much attracted by this. You'll first then get the best actor uh, as leader of the country, and the actor will be be prompted by a scriptwriter. I'd rather have our old ways, really, and put our policies firmly in front of our people.
4: But if you decline Mr. Wilson's challenge, and after all, debate is in the between personalities, is in the great British political tradition,
3: might it not look as if you were running away? Oh, no, I don't think so. After all, I debated Mr. Wilson in Parliament. Um, But um, I shall decide if I want to confront Mr. Wilson, not Mr. Wilson, if he wants to confront me.
2: About a week ago, I saw the Prime Minister on television. (laughs) It's a fact, I did. (laughs) I'm just as much allowed to watch television as any of (laughs) you. I have my favorite programs as you have and this wasn't one of
1: them again wonderful timing and, and knowing the pauses and everything he, uh, he was um, a fascinating uh, television performer I remember on the night of the um, 1964 election very 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 close um, and uh, a journalist said to him what do you feel like to be prime minister he said I feel like a drink.
0: <laughs> but that point that, that Douglas Hume was making, I mean that it mm. become about personalities Absolutely. politicians and become actors, I mean that's something we still talk about. We talk about the presidentialism of our politics, that it's become too much about who's the good performer. And I mean you criticized Boris Johnson at the beginning, but that was one of the, the charms of him as far as his party were concerned. Was Douglas Hume right?
1: Well, it was very, I think it was very prescient what he was saying because Sir Alec Douglas Hume was often seen as you know, the, the belted earl and, and not very bright, but he actually saw a great deal when, when he was talking there. I thought that, that was interesting. He, um, Harold Wilson made fun of um, Sir Alec Douglas Hume um, who had renounced his, his earldom um, and um, Harold Wilson said he's the 14th earl of Hume. And um, Alec Douglas Hume said, well, I suppose when you're trying to think of it, um, Mr. Wilson is the 14th Mr. Wilson, which is rather a good line. Um, I think it may have been written for him by his uh, speechwriter, who was uh, Nigel Lawson. Yeah. Shall we move on to...
0: Which is a good segue into the Thatcher era.
1: The Thatcher era. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah I made a number of films uh, with Miss, Mrs Thatcher over the years. Uh, and I made one um, later after I'd made the, the, the ones to, during her time as Prime Ministership um, called The Making of the Iron Lady because the, uh, we knew a great deal about her time as Prime Minister but how she managed to come... To become the first woman prime minister in the Western world, um, in in a a, a, um, not a party not uh, known for, for its generosity to, towards women. Um, so let's run the making of the Iron Lady. Yes, please. One, two, Good. One, two three, four. Well done, thank you.
3: Who do we need?
1: Who is the leader?
3: Who really can lead Maggie Thatcher? It's Maggie for me. Strong
1: as the rock,
3: straight
1: as a You might find it a bit difficult to believe, but that's the official Conservative campaign song for the general election. You might find it a bit difficult to believe, but that was me 25 years ago making a film about Margaret Thatcher. The story of her time inside Number 10 has often been told, but tonight I'll be telling the far less familiar story of how she managed to fight her way to the top in a man's world to become the West's first ever female prime minister. Who has the will? Who has the drive?
3: Who's going to bring this old country Maggie
5: Thatcher, it's Thatcher for me, two, three, four, Thatcher, 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 not a man
1: around to match up. Do you have any doubts at all about your ability to measure up to the job of prime minister?
2: Do I have any? Well, I look at some of the other people and I really, of course you have doubts, of course you have doubts. And you're tremendously aware of responsibility. But I just haven't come to this out of the blue.
1: Finchley Central is two and six months from Golders Green
5: on the Northern
1: Line. Finchley in North London first elected Margaret Thatcher as its MP in the 1959 general election. It had taken her ten years and numerous rejections before she found a winnable seat, for the odds were stacked against female politicians. And when the new member for Finchley took her seat, she found she was one of only 12 Tory women, while there were 350 conservative male members. She appeared in an ITV program called The Trouble with Men. Men are the
6: world's leaders demanding jobs that require only the best, the finest, and the most enlightened men. A few women have managed to scramble under the crushed barriers and join in the business of looking after England. One of them is Margaret Thatcher.
2: Well, we have to remember, as far as the British Parliament is concerned, that there are still only 25 women members out of a total of some 630 members of Parliament. So it's still not easy even to get elected as a woman Member of Parliament
1: there we go it's uh, fascinating yeah.
0: seeing um, the changes that she, seeing yeah.
1: absolutely and remember uh, when she when she did become uh, leader of the Tory party um, in the early days um, they said she had all, all the charisma of a privet hedge and that her voice was um, too posh her, her, her father, the grocer, had paid for her to have elocution lessons and they decided uh, that they had to do something about her voice being too posh and too shrill, they said and they sent her to um, they sent her to to the National Theatre's voice coach, the one who'd um, coached uh, Laurence Olivier when he played uh, in in Othello uh, to get his voice down and the way you do it, apparently um, is to say 20 times a day ngokoka ngokoka. so uh, you don't speak from the front of your mouth you speak from your throat and she she had a new kind of, it was seen as, as a uh, rather sexy new voice um, and in the 1983 election we, I made a film during that election called The Marketing of Margaret and um one of the big events in that election was uh, the interview that um, Sir Robin Day um, did with Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and I was on Panorama then, and when uh, Robin went to, to Number 10 to do the interview, it was sent down the line to us, um, and I managed to get a VHS and put it in and uh, record without Mrs Thatcher or Robin Day, knowing we were recording um, so this is the big interview coming up uh, for for uh, the election of Mrs Thatcher. Always, she thought they were really important to her, these uh, big interviews. And I said to her once, what, what, how, how, how do you feel about those big interviews? And she said, I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. And there's a lot of tension that, that goes into the big interview, especially at that time. So now we'll show you the, the clip which I... Recorded which um, they never ever knew about.
2: Hello, Good morning, how, did by the earlier how did the earlier thing go? Done? How did the earlier thing go? You're on earlier with Michael? Hedden. Oh, yes, yes, Please, yes. Yes, yes
4: everybody, I've forgotten by dad.
2: Is it so all right. Right. No, I'm sorry, but so 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 i always. You your mind for the next job in house. Of course,
4: that play goes to the whole I mean, the candidates gave their. Uh,
2: can you just tell me the order? Because I want to
4: know I'm going to have to do. It depends pick up. on your answers, because I don't like, you know, keeping to a strict order, because it looks as like I'm ignoring some of your say. But basically, I'm just opening on a sort of general subject. Oh yes, well, general, well, yes, these, all these things overlap. But um, basically, I start off on a general political thing, and then a bit about unemployment. But the first, early in the early bit, I'll do this business about your running on a phony manifesto
2: Excuse me. Can clip this we're not going to get on to crime are we so there might
4: be a little bit on crime but not, not, not a great section on it <coughs> not a great section on it but I think I can't I can't escape it
2: we're we not doing Belgrano or anything no, like that no, are we no, right. no, I don't regard that as an issue Thank you. you should tell some of your colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not doing Harvey Proctor or anything like that, are we, National Fund? No, no
4: nothing about that.
2: And you have that away?
4: These are broad um, issues, big issues. The fundamentals. The right. destiny nation. Uh, tell me when uh, they're, running, they're running the clock because I want to set my watch so they'll be, yes. be on time. I've got to set my watch to the hour. You
2: know. uh, how much? Um, 40
4: minutes. Just a short chat. <laughs> First time he gets a so dismay. You were on very good form this morning at the press conference. What you huh? there? No, I watched it on a set television mm. after oh, I'd done the hazel time. Mm-hmm. We go and had a feed. Mm-hmm. You see, there's a feed. Uh, sorry,
2: later. I'm just going to take the no, time. It, to... um, it might uh, bang on the table. Right.
4: One Thank of the okay. problems of doing that election call every morning is that I can't get to the press conferences that yeah. I, I did on Monday <coughs> yesterday and I will be <coughs> on mm-hmm. Thursday.
1: You can see it's quite tense, isn't it? I'd like to show you the whole interview. Well, I haven't got time for that. But it's, it's quite interesting that, that she, she wanted to know the order and he was prepared to, to give her the order. But that's a pretty
0: normal tactic of, of the you know, presenter isn't going to tell them about the questions that they've Exactly, got exactly. Although this was a bit of a deferential time. I mean, Robin Day was criticised in the past for you know, perhaps being too kind compared to today's interviewers? Well. Yes,
1: he, um, he, he was a, a lawyer by training and it, it, it was often um, forensic questioning. But interestingly, he said to me, when, um, he, when Mrs Thatcher became more and more sort of um, practised in the arts of not answering questions... Um, uh, He was off to um, do an interview uh, with Mrs. T at at number 10. And and he said to me, why don't I ask her, um, Prime Minister, what's your answer to my first question? Because he knew whatever he asked, she would have been uh, rehearsing with with her spin doctor, uh, Bernard Ingham, playing playing the role of of, of a very ferocious Robin Day. but so I think we move... Well, just ne- before, before yep. we
0: turn to... I think we've got Blair and Campbell coming up next. Yep. But before we turn to that, I mean, I've got to ask, we've got a current Prime Minister who seems to have, in the sort of you know, development of her career, been trying to consciously echo Margaret Thatcher in some of the style. Do you see any similarities in their persona in how they've come to power or anything like that?
1: Certainly not in, in uh, the sophistication of... Uh, how she has come to power. This is uh, a woman who has been uh, in every government um, uh, since since the Tories uh, got to power um, and um, n- never got sacked. And she's a lot of a lot of cabinet ministers did get sacked. But somehow seamlessly, she has managed to move from one to the other at the same time, uh, making sure that that. She um, uh, makes people think of, of Margaret Thatcher in terms of the way she dresses, in terms of going in a tank, all, all that kind of thing. She's, it's been a very sophisticated campaign to get there and has not really been, been sort of analysed and followed by, by people as it's been happening. Um, I don't at all get the sense that she's like Mrs Thatcher. And Mrs Thatcher was very a conviction politician, very convinced about, um, uh, her views. Um, I think, um, with, um, Liz Truss, um, some of it seems to be making it up as she goes along and moving in, uh, into a position where she thinks it will, uh, benefit her, you know, from the, you know, there's wonderful clips of her at the, the Liberal <laughs> Democrats conference and the, you know, the anti Royalist and all that to, to, quite a a, a right-wing figure
0: now. Um, And and somebody who hasn't always seemed very, I mean, you saw Thatcher almost in her heyday there, much more comfortable going into those kind of situations, but still, I think, um, certainly in terms of the speeches that that she's been delivering, um, obviously in a very difficult sort of period coming to be Prime Minister, she's stuck to, you know, what is her comfort zone whereas you see somebody, just to queue it up, like Tony Blair, very comfortable in front of the cameras, you know, consummate actor-politician in a sense. Queue up his, uh, his particular <laughs> bits. I think we've got him and Alistair Campbell.
1: Yeah, we, if we could have the one before that, uh, which, which is clip eight, if you've, if you've got that, uh, and I will set that up. It's very short. Can we do that? I don't know who I'm talking to. I'm big...
7: Opportunity and responsibility. They go hand in hand. And in return for those
6: opportunities, responsibility.
7: Not bigger government, but more effective government. Not bigger government, better government. New ideas for new
6: challenges. New challenges, new ideas.
1: Sometimes I heard it was Blair who would think of the line first.
6: And at the time of the next election... There will be just 1,000 days until the new millennium. 1,000 days to prepare for 1,000 years.
7: Tomorrow
3: there will be just over 1,000 days until the year 2000.
1: 1,000 days to build a bridge to a land of
7: new promise. Let us seize those days and the century.
1: Yeah, you see, Clinton is, is so modest compared. Yeah. Blair was was uh, going to seize the millennium, the whole millennium. It was like like um, Hitler's millennium, you know, the Third Reich, thousand thousand year Reich. And, and, um, and Clinton just um, wanted wanted you know, a century. That's um, very very modest. Um, Blair himself, as we know, was. Um, a, a guy who uh, really began to understand uh, how modern media works and especially with the help of um, Peter Mandelson and Alistair Campbell. I remember um, Peter Mandelson once uh, came up to me at a party. He, he glid into the room. He, he, no one saw him enter, but then he was on, on your shoulder and you only know that, that he's there next to you. Lurking that that word behind your shoulder when there is a sudden chill in the air, (laughs) and he said to me, "You do the things that's most important for a politician, Michael." I said, "What's that, Peter?" He said, "You make them appear human and then (laughs) glide away, just as I might have been able to say. Um, uh, Might be difficult with you, Peter, but." he was gone, leaving only the faintest whiff of (laughs) sulphur. But uh, um, I was pestering uh, Blair, whom I'd first filmed in uh, 1982, uh, when he was standing in the Hopeless for Labour safe Tory seat of Beaconsfield. um, And um, I saw this this um, very very young, very smiley, public school boy, and I thought I won't see him ever again. He, he lost by a, um, a landslide, but he, he was there again uh, in and, and was elected in '83. And Le- New Labour came under great deal of uh, pressure about um, spin, spin, uh, and they they thought it was the, the, the Tories um, reacting to the way new Labour had been so good at um, accusing the, the Tories of sleaze. And so spin was the new sleaze for the Tory party. And for about six years, I uh, pestered um, Campbell, whom I knew a bit, and, and Blair, to um, let, let us in to see how the... Downing Street news machine operated, and eventually um, they let us in. So we'll show show this clip.
6: just want to say not the health have BP's,
0: but the Tories well, make no Tories. apologies that is exactly
6: I say that is an accurate description. It is ludicrous to suggest serious politicians. Do you often come to um, your press of uh, office? I do if I'm passing <laughs> which I happen to be. So, how important is is um, uh, your no. press secretary? Not well, so at all. <laughs> how, what, what? how how important is Alastair Campbell to you? Of course, I mean, the press sector is important for the prime minister. I mean, it would be odd if if he wasn't, I think. Yeah, but this this particular... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I like to think I've I've hired the best in the business. I hope I have anyway. So, uh, yeah, of course. But, you know, a lot of twaddles talked about it as well. Yeah, but everyone says the importance you put on relations with the media is greater than it's been with any government in the past. I think it's just modern government now. Look, it's a -a 24-hour-a-day news media. If you don't, if a story comes out that says something and you don't, you haven't got the capacity to get on top of it and say, no, hang on, sorry, the facts are X and Y. And as you probably discovered, I mean, it's not as if. You know, these stories don't take a life of their own and then start running away into the far distance. And then the public thinks, "Oh my goodness, what on earth are they doing that for?" When you're not doing it at all, um, you know, it's important to have the capacity to, to get on top of the, the news as far as it's possible. But it's it's less important to us than I think it is in in the way that people perceive it.
1: And when they say it, say in the papers who announced the camera spend your whole time thinking about how you're going to win the next election. Everything is planned and worked out to be spun in that sort of way. I mean, it's just
6: rubbish. What it's like what I was supposed to have spent my holidays with them last year or something. I mean, you know, much as I like him, but uh, no. So why do you think the press don't believe this? Are they corrosively cynical? I honestly don't know, and that's for you to to do. But what is important for me is that it doesn't disturb me from doing the things that are really important in the end. Which are, you know, The things for the, for the country, otherwise there's no point in doing this job. And you know, people, you know, people can believe that or not as like, but that's that's what I spend my time thinking
1: of. So why you just spent seven minutes talking to Michael Cockle? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> classic example of a spin doctor blowing his own client out of the water. He he said to me afterwards that he wished he'd bitten his lip, and then that's why he spent the last seven minutes talking. It's
0: it's fascinating, because I I remember that from, from watching the documentary, and I always assumed Campbell had told Blair, Blair knew, and he'd purposefully come in to sort of do that bit. Um, you know, talk about sort of the role of Campbell, defend himself, and so forth. But you say it was just purely accident that he.
1: Well, I'd said to I'd said to um, Campbell that, that that we weren't getting enough interaction between him and um, the prime minister, um, and he said the problem is if I tell him you're going to be there, then he goes all stiff. Um, he sometimes he sometimes. Comes into my office, and if you happen to be filming in my office, you you, you might catch him. And he comes in and didn't realise that, that that we were there. Um, and he, you know, I took the opportunity to doorstep him in his own office. It was, but it uh, a lot of the the the, the press. Uh, Coverage of it said that it looked as if um, that he Blair in in shirt sleeves was was the, the sort of naughty schoolboy coming mm. into the headmaster's study rather than the other way round. Mm. And um, I remember that the next day I happened to be playing in a, a charity cricket match where Rory Bremner, the impressionist, was, and he said, "I'm watching that film frame by frame." And he got he and another guy who played uh, <coughs> Alexander Campbell got there. Their body language is now voice, absolutely right noticed after that. I him doing the yes.
0: classic Blair hand movement, yeah. Um, I mean, Blair did bring a new way of thinking about sort of political handling of the press to government, didn't he? And, and, you know, Alistair Campbell was a big part of that, but I think it was also Blair's ability in front of the cameras.
1: Yes. Um, I mean, he, he, he from, from the first, uh, the, the Labour Party and Mandelson in particular, uh, well before um, Blair was anything other than an up-and-coming MP, would put him on television um, because this was a new, fresh face of Labour. And he, he became very experienced uh, uh, about it all. But um, he... he I, I remember going to film him in the run-up to, to the Iraq war mm. and um, it was about six months before the Iraq war and uh, the the number 10 line was that um, no decisions have been taken no decisions have been taken and I was doing a film about Anglo-American relations and and I said to to Blair um, an American Secretary of State said the definition of the special relationship for the Americans is are the Brits going to be there when when the shooting starts, are the Brits going to be there? And uh, Blair said exactly they don't want warm words of consolation; they want to know are uh, you going to commit your troops? Um, and um, he, I said uh, the, this American Secretary of State had said, um, "Yeah, they want to know um, are the Brits prepared to pay the blood price?" and um, Uh, Blair said that's exactly what the relationship is and the next day in all the papers it was Blair says we'll pay the blood price I remember walking out of number 10 thinking within six months we'll be at war
0: all right well let's uh I'm conscious of time so let's turn to another person who seemed seemed quite comfortable in front of the cameras perhaps Less so towards his end of time of office, but um, I think your last few clips are about Boris Johnson in particular.
1: Yeah. So um, I made a, um, a film about Boris Johnson. I, I don't know which one. What which one do you say you've got? Cause
0: um, I can't remember which one was I up first. I think it, it should
1: be clip eleven.
0: Which is is that the one of him? Was it one?
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. this is is a film
0: we've got that ready, got the thumbs up this is him obviously well before
1: yeah, um, he's mayor of London um, and um, this is is a film I made called Boris Johnson The Irresistible Rise and one of the things, just before you play it one of the things I do um, which will be illustrated in this is I um, get together clips of their previous life on television because almost all politicians uh, especially as when it's early film or early TV shows have never seen themselves on television they're, they're working in the evenings and, they, and it wasn't that easy to, to get recordings in, in those days and you show you show them uh, film from their early life and they get absolutely fascinated and uh, I remember when I was doing a film about Kenneth Clark Ken Clark um, uh, I said I'll show you this stuff and you you probably might have seen some of it and uh, just react naturally he says you mean you want me to sit here and shout at the television like I do at home I said you've got it in one and I showed um, Boris a clip here uh, which uh, he hadn't seen which is quite memorable okay going to more gold silver bronze
5: medals you need to bail out Greece and Spain together final question are you Olympic Games, that has ever been held in Well, I was very lucky to be mayor at the time of the Olympic Games, is all I can say. And it was a jammy, it was a jammy, jammy old trick to pull. But what was it like for you to, to hear that huge crowd chanting Boris, Boris, Boris? A very, 50, very bad for you. I mean, don't do it. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very bad for the ego. Um, but you do understand why Roman emperors put on great games and great spectacle i mean you suddenly you think, thinking wow um this is obviously a big thing so you know so uh, i mean would you like to be a roman emperor no <laughs> <laughs> they invariably he came to, to sticky hands <laughs> he by through the air
1: with the greatest of his
2: a daring young man on the
1: the sticky end was the mot for Johnson's celebrated trip, which climaxed with the daring young mayor stuck on the zip wire.
5: I want you to know. You it's going very, very well organized. Okay. Get <laughs> <laughs> me a ladder. <laughs> I want you to know that that was far more painful and frightening than you might think. In what and way? Because it was, to start with, it was jolly high up. And after you stuck up there for a while, yeah. stuff starts to, to chafe and so on and so forth. Well, around your groin. You know, I, don't, I don't want to go into these details, Michael. I mean, it was chafing chafing was involved. But I thought you write, wrote in your book. Did uh, I write? Yeah, yeah. The, the actual, I'm only quoting you, <laughs> Boris. This is what's so difficult. I quote you. I can never remember what I've You <laughs> okay. said it got very, very tight around your groin area. Did it? Right. Well, in fact, why well, I wrote in my book, it must be, uh, must be a secret. Hey. Hey.
2: If any other politician anywhere in the world got stuck on a zip wire
7: it would be you know disastrous for boris it would be an absolute triumph uh, there's no, um, he um, he defies he defies all forms of gravity
1: what have we got for our next clip
0: yeah
1: you can see you can see that it just in in what what um cameron says that that, that that relationship between these two guys who kind of grew up together, uh, were at Eton at the same time, were at Oxford at the same time. and.
0: Uh, but also that was a time when Cameron was quite comfortable with Boris Johnson's absolutely. position. Yes. You know, he, that's
1: that's uh, why he, he made unlike him... Unlike Theresa
0: May, he didn't have to yeah. face him as quite the same immediate
1: No, no exactly. He, he, um, he, he decided, he, he wanted to... to, to get a, uh, a candidate for mayor of London. And if he could persuade Boris to to stand, um, he'd lose, of course, they thought, uh, to Ken Livingstone, because he couldn't beat Ken Livingstone in London by, by being a Tory. Um, and Boris himself, I know from what his sister told me at the time, that, that Boris thought it was a trap by... by Cameron, to, to get him off, uh, out of Parliament and, and not being a contender for, for the, the, the Tory leadership. Mm.
0: All right, a bit more on, on Boris Johnson. I think you've got Clip 17.
1: Clip 17. I can't remember yes. one this is at this okay. Point. Uh, this is the uh, Newsnight film on uh, the eve of Boris becoming Prime Minister.
5: Would you like to be Prime Minister? I think it's a very tough job being Prime Minister. Very tough job. I mean, obviously, if the ball came loose from the back of a scrum, um, which it won't, Might. Or, or, of course it would be, it'd be a great, great thing to have a crack at, but it's not going to happen. The human bulldozer who snatched the ball from the back of
1: the Tory scrum is a man of many contradictions. A classical scholar turned popular entertainer, A self-proclaimed liberal one-nation Tory, hand in glove with the hardline Brexiteers. There's a spectrum of opinion about it. One is that he will be the most unsafe pair of hands ever to open a prime ministerial red box. And at the other end, people think here is a man of brilliance and flair who can suddenly, like an alchemist, turn the base metal of Brexit to something shiny and remarkable. So who is the real Boris Johnson? What makes him tick? And what kind of fist will he make of the job he has craved since he was a boy? This is Boris Johnson, age 5, paddling his own canoe. He grew up the eldest of four children in the hugely competitive Johnson family.
0: He knows that life is a competition and he wants always wants to be top. Whenever anyone asked him what he wanted to be, he would answer, world king. That is true.
1: He painted this self-portrait at the age of 12 and downgraded his ambition to becoming British prime minister. He was off to Eton, where he became a star of the school plays and discovered he could make people laugh. Do you think that you learnt something for later life from acting in plays at Eton, that you could actually get more laughs... By looking as if you don't know your lines
5: than actually remembering them. Well, I certainly think that as a general tactic in life, if that's what you're driving at, it is is often useful to give the slight impression that you are deliberately pretending not to know what is going on because the reality may be that you don't know what is going on, but people won't be able to tell the difference.
0: This is why he's dementing for other politicians, because they're all, to an extent, playing a part assigned to them by the party. You know, you have to be loyal, you have to be a good Tory. Boris has realised quite early on that he would go further if he broke all those rules, and people would love him even more.
1: Mm. And we've got one last clip, I think, uh, which is clip 18... Um, and this was also also came from that film on the eve of him uh, becoming Prime Minister I was going to show you the film I made which you may have seen um, about his time as Prime Minister but for technical reasons we couldn't uh, get it Um, but this is a very good substitute, this is the end of the the film about him uh, on the eve of him becoming Prime Minister and um, You will see uh, Sir Nicholas Soames, um, the the, uh, grandson of uh, Churchill and an old Etonian and friend of of, uh, Boris Johnson, who starts by talking about uh, Boris's time as uh, Foreign Secretary and what that did for him.
7: I think he had a chance to prove to the world and to himself... To his friends and supporters that he would be an outstanding, he could do a really big job at a very difficult time, which it was, and in my view he failed. So that again also gives me cause for anxiety and worry. It doesn't alter the fact that he's extremely agreeable to have dinner with. (laughs) Sir Nicholas
1: Soames is the grandson of Sir Winston Churchill. And Boris Johnson recently wrote a biography of Churchill in which he pointedly noted that Churchill was a journalist turned politician with many human flaws who was written off but called in to save his country in its darkest hour. Alexander Boris de Fethel Johnson is now about to become Britain's 55th Prime Minister and the 20th Old Etonian with many people questioning his ability to handle the most daunting and difficult of jobs in the most forbidding political environment since the Second World War. Do you have any doubts
5: about your ability to fulfil the role of Prime Minister? I think people who don't have doubts or anxieties about their you know, ability to, 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 to do things probably have something slightly terrifyingly awry. Um, you know, we all have worries and uh, uh, insecurities, but I think... Um, I think I've done it. I think we've done a pretty good job so far in City Hall, and that's what we to continue to do.
4: Boris has a, a vision for the country, uh, and this, this energy and this optimism, which the British people are longing to feel, because he believes in the future. He is an optimist, and an optimist is catching. It's like a smile, it's catching. You share it like a cold. You look at it and you smile too. He's not phased by difficult. In fact, I think the harder the challenge, the more we'll get out of him as Prime Minister Boris.
1: My biggest single worry, perhaps, about Boris Johnson is that he seems to me to be a politician who has inhaled his own legend before he's created it. He's shown levels of personal and political narcissism which do worry me. And this is as if he believes in his own myth. My own feeling veers towards the anxiety end of the spectrum. I hope I'm wrong, but it certainly does veer towards the anxiety end of the spectrum, because you cannot bask being Prime Minister.
7: I texted him last weekend, and I said to him, when Churchill became Prime Minister, on the day he became Prime Minister, he went back to his flat, where he met my grandmother and his children, and they drank a, a bottle of champagne. And he proposed a taste, which I quoted to Boris, of he has to not buggering it up. And I said to Boris, I can't possibly vote for you. I can't vote for you. But I pray for all our sakes, you don't bugger it up. And that is my hope for Boris. And your fear? My fear is that he could bugger it up.
1: And the film. Yeah. So, um,
0: Quite something. All right, let's just, I've got a couple of questions on... Please. Um, from our audience at home. And sorry if you couldn't see all of the videos there, obviously. Uh, Many of them in in the back catalogue across the BBC. Uh, So somebody has asked, who did you find was the most intelligent uh, prime minister, uh, in your opinion, and why? And I guess that's interesting in the context of what we're talking about, of that ability to understand media in its different forums.
1: Yes. I mean, there's a difference between... um understanding media and being intelligent. Um, what, what was it Roy Jenkins said about um, Tony Blair, that he didn't have a first-class mind, but he had a second-class mind, but a great deal of charm. And maybe that's uh, more useful for being prime minister. He wasn't sure. Um, who did I find that the most intelligent... It's a very good question
0: well we can come back to it if we've got um questions in the room we can probably manage to squeeze a couple in if anyone's got anything ah, perfect too yeah and if you could say who you are and organization for anyone watching at home that would be fantastic we'll start from the city of london corporation uh, where do you see your documentary making between a contemporaneous record and history of writing uh, should we take the other question at the back? I'll keep a note of them in case we... Hi, I'm Teresa Potocka. Sense of Future Pictures. I actually work in the television space. Um, I just wondered, as I I am quite involved in doing similar things to what you've been doing over the years, and I just wondered what advice you'd give to someone uh, who's early in this space, and also when you were involved in the secret world of Whitehall, what could you and couldn't you do, and what is it that kept you sort of... You know, on course. Thank Mm. you. Very interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've been lucky enough uh, over the years is is to manage to get access to places that you normally are not allowed to film, and I think it sort of builds on itself if you do make uh, films, kind of what you're talking about, contemporary history films, and people see it um, and they know. Hopefully that, that they're not going to be um, stitched up. Um, I always try never to use the techniques of television against anyone. It's so easy. It's getting even much, much easier than it's ever been in terms of what you can do digitally to, to make people say almost anything you want. Um, uh, but I w- refuse to, to do anything like that. I always like to, to make a film... Uh, where the people afterwards, they may not sort of like it very much, but they recognise that it's it's an attempt at balance, that it's a fair picture, that, that that they haven't been stitched up. In terms of your question, were you saying where do I, what's where am I on um, contemporary history? I mean, it is contemporary history, that, and what I try and do is is get people. Um, often, while they are still in office, um, to a lot of them. I remember Jack, Jack Straw when he was he was uh, foreign secretary and Home secretary. He said, "I like doing your interviews because um, every other interview is just a, a news bite, but uh, you um, make me think of what's going on and what, what I'm doing and what the what the a wider world than than the narrow world of a normal um, TV interview Um, so and and they quite enjoy that Um, yeah I hope it is uh, uh, I remember um, Peter Riddle um, Sir Peter Riddle OB right on all all of those who used to be uh, uh, a, a humble hack like me um Um, But he he once wrote uh, about one uh, one of my films. He he said that often uh, my films are much more revealing about what um, uh, politicians are are really up to than their self-serving memoirs ever are, and that you get more sense of what um, politicians are really like. I mean... uh, I, I, some people in the room might remember um, a guy called Bob McKenzie, Professor Bob McKenzie, who was famous. He was an LSE academic and also famous uh, for his swingometer. Um, and he once said to me, Imagine if there were um, films of um, Gladstone and Disraeli. And I thought, I'm going to make the films about today's Gladstone and Disraeli because. You know, we know a lot about what Disraeli and Gladstone looked like. We even know a, a tiny bit about what... Um, there's a very scratchy recording in 1896 of Gladstone talking, but um, uh, we know not anything about what they would really have been like on television, their body language, and what kind of people they really were. We know a fantastic amount about their politics, but not about them as human mm. beings. So and it, I'll it's I'll changed now even task. more
0: because, I mean, even for a lot of the period you're talking about, there was a certain amount of control for politicians that they knew when they were on camera. At least they had agreed to do an interview, they'd agreed to do a documentary. Whereas now, anyone with a camera phone can catch you unawares. Yes. So that sort of media performance, as it were, it, you're almost never, never off. You no, know, that's it's right. Constant.
1: Yeah, um, and. The way it then gets magnified on social media in, in extraordinary ways. I never know what um, what the reaction to my film will be. I, I remember I uh, won great um, stars with my many daughters um, when they were watching one of uh, it was the Boris film. They were watching with with many of their school friends because um, Boris was a, a, a fascinating figure for them. And um, my daughter said to me. Dada, you're trending on Twitter. And, uh, and they looked at me with new respect after that.
0: Wonderful. Um, got a quick question from me. I mean, we've talked about what a tumultuous few years it has been. Mm. You've had, obviously, unparalleled access to Whitehall at, at various times for various documentaries. Is there a particular moment, a particular department in the last few years that you just wish you'd been there with the cameras?
1: Yeah, I'd like to have been in the Treasury with Rishi Sunak. Very definitely, and I'd like to have also expanded that to see how Rishi Sunak was making absolutely sure he would be the next Prime Minister. You know, he was doing a bit of chancing, but he was doing a great deal of image building and not really noticing that there was someone else doing the same thing.
0: Yeah. That would we'll
1: have been fascinating.
0: Probably have to wait for the, the memoir, self-serving mm. or otherwise, to, to find out about... Okay, we're going to have to draw it to a close now, uh, out of time. Thank you very much, Michael, for joining us tonight. Um, Your book... Uh, is available, um, which covers your, your memoirs, and we've got a few copies outside as well. It's called
1: Unmasking Our Leaders, Confessions of a Political Documentary Maker, and there are a lot of stories which I haven't told yep. tonight.
0: Looking forward the... to reading it myself. Um, thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you at home uh, for watching. We will be visiting the party conferences uh, for the next two weeks, so do have a look at our um, our website if you want to see uh, the events that we're holding there if you're coming to party conference, but also watch out we will be doing different form of media we will be doing Twitter spaces uh, from the party conferences giving a bit of live IFG analysis of how we're finding it, um, whether we've managed to eat anything, get any sleep uh, and so forth so, so keep an eye out for that. Thank you very much for joining us. See you soon. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.